Good evening, everybody. How are you all today? This evening. Good Easter. Did you get a lot of food to eat? Is your tummy's full? Good. Don't fall asleep, please. <laughs> Listen, I'm first up on the list, and uh, I don't know why I'm first up on the list. I don't know. Yeah, you see, I've got people on this side saying, why is he up first on the list? It's just crazy. You could take the verse that I'm about to do out of context and pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm going to start us off. And uh, to stick to my time, I've even put a timer. So I have five minutes, and I'm going to stick to my five minutes. Otherwise, David will come from the side and tackle me. So, all right. So the first verse we're looking at is Luke uh, 23, verse 34. And it's Jesus saying, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, now let me tell you something about this verse. It's probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and it just gives me a lump in my throat when I really think about what Jesus is saying at this point. He's about to die, and he looks at those who have been persecuting them, and he says, Father, forgive them. Now, now let me just quickly fill you in on the slight bit of context. Before Jesus was even taken uh, to Pilate, uh, sorry, when, when Jesus was taken to Pilate, you remember he was standing in front of the Jewish people and Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time, said to the Jewish people, you have a choice. You can either choose to let Barabbas go, who was a criminal, or you can let Jesus go, who was a free man, and they chose to let Barabbas go, so they let the criminal go. So even Jesus at this point is actually deserted by his own people. Then what happens after that is he is whipped, uh, and this is a little bit gruesome, I'm not going to try and make it too gruesome, but he was whipped with a, a, a whip that's called a, a cat of 39 tails, and basically this grips into your body, and because there's children here, I'm not going to explain too much, but the Romans believed that if you got hit 40 times with this whip, you would die, so they whipped Jesus 39 times. So he's on the brink of death. He's been deserted by his own people. And then what happened in those days was the city was round and you would be whipped in the middle. And, and then what they would do is lead you to outside the city where you'd be hung, which was perfect for everybody to come and mock you. And if you think Jesus wore a loincloth like in the kids' stories, he didn't. He was completely naked. Dragging a heavy cross. I'll leave out the one point because there's kids here, but it gets, it's gruesome. Likely he couldn't control his bowel movements because he'd been beaten so badly. And eventually he's hung alone. And what happens in the section that we read in Luke's gospel is his clothes are gambled away, which is a kind of a big sign to Jesus saying, you are nothing. You're not even worth the clothes on your back. So when you read that, now you know the context. You think to yourself, how in the world... Can you say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they've done? How can, you, how can you forgive them? Do you see why I get a lump in my throat? They've robbed you of everything. They've beaten you and reminded you over and over again that you're worthless, and yet you're the God of the universe. Now, John 3.16 gives us the reason as to why God does this. And I hope... You know this verse. Most of us do. We know it off by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now you know what it took for him to give his son. Now, now, let me tell you this. Jesus could have stopped the mocking. He could have stopped the beating. He could have chosen not to carry that cross. 
He's God. He can do what he likes. Instead, he chooses to go through it because he loves the wicked. (laughs) And once he's gone through all of this, he still chooses to forgive them despite everything that has happened. Friends, look, you can look everywhere, but I don't think anywhere in the world will you find a better way of saying I love you than that. It's love because, now here's the thing, you and I should be on that tree, right? You know, when I, when I look at that verse, I get a lump in my throat because of the fact that I know I'm just like the person down there throwing insults at the Lord. If you think about it, God created us to be in a relationship with him, right? That's Genesis 1. Your purpose is to be in relationship with him and enjoy him. He created you to find your ultimate joy in him. But how much time do we give him? You're lucky if he gets a couple of hours a month. How much time do we give ourselves? (laughs) Probably about 90%. But are you joyous as you could be in that 90% giving to yourself? You can't be. Because you were never created to be. You were created to find your joy in Christ, but you choose to live for yourself despite the many preachers, teachers, friends, parents who are calling you to come back to Jesus. You're designed for Him, but you choose rather to follow anything else but Him. Your actions are a clear sign. God, you're worthless. Here's the thing. He doesn't look on you with hate. He wanted to forgive you so much so that he chose to come down and to give his life on a cross and to forgive you despite everything you throw at him. All you need to do is come to him and here's the thing, he forgives. And if you're a Christian here today, I want you to see this. You might have forgotten how much God loves you. Life can be tough. We know it. But here's the thing. At the cross, you see Jesus giving up everything. It says in Philippians chapter 2 that he emptied himself. What does that mean, Christian? He gave everything for you. And if you're not a Christian here today, here's the open invitation. He forgives you for everything. And when you come into that relationship, you experience a love that is as great as this. Amen. So I'm looking at uh, Luke 23 verses 39 till 43. Let me quickly read that um, and let's continue hearing the Lord speak to us. One of the criminals who were hung railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do not... Uh, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, this is the thief saying to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds in verses 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Amen.
Man, somebody say today. 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 I, if there's anything that I want you to get from the five minutes that I'm going to be up here, is this. Uh, that the death of Jesus Christ gives us assurance to those who have placed their faith and trust in Him, that if today anything would happen to you, you would be with Him in paradise. Amen. Amen. Somebody say today. 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 I, if you lacking energy, it's going to be a long night. Right? Somebody say today. Yeah. Amen. All right, so what's happening in this text is that we find two thieves that are crucified next to Jesus, one on the left and one on the right. The text doesn't really tell us who said what, uh, but just for the sake of the sermon, I will say the one on the left is the one who was mocking Jesus, and the one on the right is the one who's rebuking him. And so the one on the left is basically singing the song that all the Romans and the Israelites are singing, that Jesus cannot be the Messiah. He cannot be who he says he truly is. The, the one who has been sent by God, God's chosen king to come save the world. And so they're mocking him. But the one on the right then rebukes the one on the left and says, hey, listen, this is who he says he truly is. Right? In fact, two things are happening with the thief on the left. Uh, firstly, in verses 41, he recognizes who he truly is. He sees himself as a sinner. He sees himself as somebody who's vile. He sees himself as somebody who deserves to be hung on that cross. If you didn't know this, Anyone who was hung on the cross was the lowest of all criminals. In fact, if you were treasonous towards the empire, the Roman Empire, they would hang you on the cross. The cross was reserved for the worst of all criminals. And say, so here's this criminal on the left. He basically sees himself for who he truly is. Somebody who's evil, who's vile, who's lived their life, uh, turned against God. And they rebelled and wanted to do everything their own way. Secondly, in verses 42, he recognizes who Jesus is is. Because he says, Jesus, when you get to your kingdom, uh, please welcome me. And so a kingdom is not a kingdom without a king. And so what the text is telling us is that the thief recognizes that Jesus is the king, the true Messiah, the one who's been sent by God to come save the world. Amen. Amen. And so as you sit here this evening, I wonder if these two things have happened in your life or are happening currently as you sit here. That one, you realize that you are vile in your heart. That you realize that you are evil, that you realize that you are in a desperate need for a savior, that you realize that you've turned your back against God and you've lived a life that is defined in your own terms. Amen, some sinners out there. Amen. Amen. Alright? And if you don't recognize that, I pray today that by the Holy Spirit you would see that in your life. And once you see that, then the second thing happens. You will realize that your sin is so overwhelming that there's nothing or no one in the universe that can heal you, that could redeem you, that could save you except the king who was hanging on that cross more than 2,000 years ago, that you too will realize that it is only Jesus, the true savior of the world, that could really save you. Amen. And so then what happens is, imagine with me, this thief is hanging on the cross and he's about to die. And so when he dies, his next reality is him standing before the throne of God. That's literally what's going to happen when he leaves that cross. And so when he's standing before the throne of God, God would ask him, why should I let you live for all eternity? 
This thief has done a lot of things in his life. Right? He has probably murdered people. He's probably stolen from people. He's probably done so many things that he has nothing to stand on when he's looking at God. And God is asking him, why should I let you live for all eternity? And we might be sitting here today and we recognize that we are like the thief. We've done many bad things in our lives, but we suffer from one temptation. The temptation of believing that we want to do a lot of other good things to offset all the bad things that we've done in our lives. Amen, somebody. Right? That we want to come to church. We want to tithe to the church. We want to give to the poor. We want to pray. We want to read our Bibles. All because we believe that is what we're going to offer God when He asks us, why should I let you live for all eternity? Now let me remind you of something. If it is true that the thief left the cross and was standing before the throne of God, he had nothing to stand on. He could not say to God, you can let me live for all eternity because I went to Bible study. You can let me live for all eternity because I gave to the church. There was no time for that. He cannot say, God, I wore the right suits and the proper pointy white shoes and I spoke in the right tongues. Hallelujah! He cannot say that because he had no time to do any of those things. So don't fall into the temptation of thinking that you're going to present a list before God and say, look at all these things that I've done and that's why you need to let me live for all eternity. The thief has one thing and one thing only. The assurance of the one in the middle. Somebody say the one in the middle. That's the only thing that the thief has. Why should I let you live for all eternity? Well, because your son, the one who's the true king, the one who came to die for the world, the one who was hanging on the cross that I rightfully hung on, but clearly I could not bear its weight. The one who you sent to the world to save criminals like me, he gave me assurance. Amen. He's the one who said today he will see me in paradise. Amen. He's the one who said the way is open. He is the truth. He is the life. I have nothing else. I wonder how many of us recognize that we are criminals with no leg to stand on unless you have the assurance of the one who was standing in the middle. Somebody say in the middle. That's the only assurance that Steve had. That's the only assurance that you have. That's the only assurance I have. If you will die today, something would happen to you today. The only assurance you have is the truth that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, more than 2,000 years ago, left his throne in heaven, came down to earth, became like one of us, lived the life that you failed to live, went on the cross that you rightfully deserved, took on the punishment of God that was directed to you, and he took it upon himself so that you can be free. He became death so that you can have life. He became enslaved so that you could be free. He became the punishment so that you can have salvation and grace upon your life today. Amen and amen and amen. Hallelujah. Fire. We've come now to the third word on the cross, and it is one of the least known words on the cross, yet it is one of the most personal uh, that Jesus would speak to uh, as he looks at his disciple, uh, his his friend John, and as he looks at his mother. Uh, We're going to read it from John chapter 19, verses 26 uh, to 27. Uh, they've just gambled uh, for his clothes. I was looking at Black. I was thinking maybe the thieves were gambling for his clothes. That's why he did not follow the memo. But we, we find ourselves in verse 26. When Jesus saw, when Jesus saw his mother and his disciples whom he loved, 
standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Right here, what we have in this few words is Jesus getting personal with us. Uh, there were never words across scripture that were more personal than these. Uh, now you remember that John's gospel is one that starts off on high. It begins with telling us that this same Jesus is Jesus who was in the beginning. Through him, all things were made uh, and what we have in existence uh, came because of him. Uh, This is the God in the beginning. Uh, The same God in chapter 13 washes his disciples' feet. He stoops so low uh, as to do a work of a servant by washing the disciples' feet. And uh, John tells us that this is a picture of what Jesus is going to do as he hangs on that cross, that he is going to serve us uh, by dying on the cross. Uh, now, what we hear in John's gospel, in John chapter 13, it says that having loved his own, he loved them till the very end. Jesus loves you till the very end. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you till the very end. If you. Now, if there was ever a moment where you ever doubted the love of God, and I think the two preachers who came before me spoke of it, it is in the forgiveness that we experience uh, at the cross. It is in the fact that God offers us belonging, as he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But this year, what we see is the love of the supreme God uh, displayed in someone dying and looking at his friend and saying, take care of my mother. Take care of my mother. Can you imagine that the God of the universe humbling himself uh, to the cross and saying and uttering this word and loving his own till the end uh, and displaying his love to his mother and taking care of her even after after death. Now I need to wrap it up because the two other preachers took all the time and I'm getting excited. Um, But let me just paint the picture for you uh, by telling a story of one man who died. The one death that was personal It happened on the outskirts of Pretoria. It was in 1979, on the 6th of April, as they hung him by the Pretoria Maximum. Uh, His last words were, that my blood will nourish the tree that will bear the fruit of my my freedom. And these words that were personal, he said, tell my people that I love them. That man was Solomon Kalushi, uh, and that very day, it was a political move, but what we don't often remember is that it was a personal thing. It was, a, it was personal, uh, because on that day, as I often read the story, I get chills down my spine, because on that day, somebody's son died. Um, and so let's rather move away from that picture as we picture the mother of Solomon Mathangu holding her head as uh, mothers do in total utter despair that I'm losing my only child. Uh, Let us take that picture and uh, remove it from Pretoria and go back to the cross of Jesus Christ on the 7th of April uh, 30th AD as he hung on that cross. And remember that on this day uh, the Romans thought to themselves that this was a political 
move that would destroy this man. Uh, yet this man had greater plans. God would raise him as we remember today. But what we often forget is that on that cross, it was personal. Uh, it was personal. Jesus doesn't become more personal than this. We don't see the ultimate act of love like we do here. And we can uh, picture Mary holding her head uh, in utter total despair, watching her son, the very son that she saw turning water into wine in chapter 2, the very son that was kicking in her stomach. This is the very son that hangs on the cross, whipped and crucified. And I, I don't know what she must have been thinking i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a parent and i could never ever uh, uh imagine what it would look like to lose any of my children but what we do remember is that this in the in the eyes of mary in the eyes of jesus this was personal uh, this was personal but it was personal because this was god's way of saying yes i am a supreme god yes i am a god who created everything but yet i love you and i wonder if there's something that you embrace and something that you know for yourself this evening because we live in a world where very often we doubt the love of the father whether it is that we go through difficulties whether it is that we go through christians who judge us uh, whether it is that we feel like we came in here and we just don't feel like we match up as we read the words of jesus on the cross we remember that it was personal uh, because love is personal and jesus wants to get personal with you uh, this evening amen. amen father why have you forsaken me jesus was crucified around 9 a.m in the morning around 12 Darkness covered the whole land up until 3 p.m. This is not a natural event. It is a supernatural phenomenon telling us that something supernatural is happening. God is turning the lights off. Around 3 p.m., our Lord Jesus cries, and the Bible says he cries loudly. It's not this small cry, my God, my God. It's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cry on the cross goes beyond the pain of crucifixion. Of course, the pain of crucifixion is very excruciating. It's painful. But here this cry is beyond our human understanding. Jesus was drinking the cup of God's holy wrath. He was enduring God's punishment for sins. The comfort of God's love was beyond the reach of our Savior Jesus as he hung on that cross. There is an agonizing loss of fellowship with God, a sense of abandonment from God. That's what Jesus is going through. Why would the sinless, perfect man to ever walk this world would cry loud these words? Of course, Jesus was bearing the sins of the world on his shoulders. He was bearing my sins. He was bearing your sins. All my pride, all my evil thoughts, my lies, the jealousy that is within my heart, all the gossip that comes from my lips, the murder that I have committed when I hate my neighbor, all the sins that I cannot even mention, by name, because I'm not proud of them. On that moment, on that cross, Jesus was carrying them on his shoulders. 
I do not know about you. The echo of these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How they sound in your head. These words tell me that Jesus went through hell because of me, because of my sins, which are so many. These words tell me that God hates sin. That is why I must hate sin because I belong to Jesus. That's a great love from God to us. And the closest example I can think of when it comes to God's love, it's the mother's love for her child. The mother's love for her child is described as the purest, purest form of love. Mothers will go through hell for the sake of their children. From the time they give birth, all the way up until they grow. There's this bond that no one can explain between a mother and a child. And I'm pretty sure the mothers who are here can tell, can tell us more about this. But even for the child, maybe you were not raised by the love of your mother, but someone showed love to you. Someone raised you up to where you are. But the love that you experienced is nothing compared to God's love for us in the person of Jesus. So Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he cry that? So that I do not have to cry those words. But instead I have to enjoy the comfort of God's love, knowing that in him my sins are forgiven. And I can enjoy the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that I do not have to experience the separation from God's love and endure hell, which is what I deserve outside Jesus. So he became my substitute. And I think the great response is just to say, thank you, Jesus. So Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that I can have the assurance of God's love for me that he had to forsake his son. Think about it. God had to forsake Jesus because he loves you. That's the greatest love. Where does this leave us? Two things. If we turn to Jesus in repentance, we will never be God forsaken. The other option, if we do not turn to Jesus in repentance and ask God to forgive our sins, it means we will be God forsaken. The choice is yours here this evening. Remember this, Jesus became sin for us so that you and me can become children of God. As you live here, remember these words, that Jesus became sin for you so that you can become a child of God. May God, the Holy Spirit, apply this truth to our hearts today and help us to turn to Jesus in repentance. Amen. Amen. So when I heard I had five minutes, I knew it wasn't possible. <laughs> You've just got to know your limits in life. So I decided not to give you a sermon. I'm going to give you a poem instead. Poems are shorter. Our verse is John chapter 19, verse 28. Later, 
knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. I thirst. He thirsts. The thirst of a man, a mere man, a man born of woman, born under the law, framed, hemmed in in front and behind, caged by space and time, ruled by the heat of the sun and the cool of the moon, captive to need, hunger, fatigue, loneliness, thirst. He thirsts, the thirst of a pure man, a holy man, cast adrift on a salty sea of sin, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. The salty kiss of Judas on his cheek, the salt of hypocrisy's backhand across his face, the salty tears of Peter's denial scorching his heart. He thirsts, the thirst of a suffering servant, clothed in purple linen, crowned with thorns, torn flesh and bloody stripes for an undergarment, the steel scepter of hatred in his right hand and in his left. He thirsts for the love of true friends, only the vinegar of loss and betrayal on his lips. He thirsts, the parched thirst of the orphaned son, father forsaken, outside, abandoned. He drinks the sea dry. He drinks the cup of barren, godless, never-ending desert thirst for you. His cup empty, yours flowing over. He thirsts down to the dust of death. He plunges you into the fountain of life. He thirsts so that you can drink. Amen. John chapter 19 and verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. For just a moment, I want you to think, just quietly in the back of your head, I want you to think about the two worst things that you have done. Think about it now. Probably hardly anyone else knows, perhaps a few other people. But if I think of the two worst things that I have done, I am desperate to forget them. I don't want to remember them. I'm filled with shame. Perhaps it's been hurt that you have caused your parents or your children unspeakable hurt. Your head bows as you think of what you did and what you said. Perhaps it's some incident in your family that caused deep, deep wounds and scars. You blush as you think of it. 
Perhaps you stole money and it destroyed a friendship. It wasn't the money, it was the friendship, it was the trust that was so damaged. Perhaps you committed adultery and you fractured a marriage, a family. Think of the children. Perhaps you killed someone in war or in the womb. Perhaps it wasn't a literal death, but your words, your hatred, your anger was so, so toxic, it might as well have been murder. You may not believe in God, but you can't get away from your conscience, can you? It's called the revenge of the conscience. You can't get rid of that guilt or that shame or that memory. You feel soiled. It's a little bit like that mark on the carpet that you just may have been blood or oil or wine and you can't get rid of it. It's a stain. You know that God forgives, but you can't forgive yourself. And my dear friends, every one of us is included here, aren't we? Every one of us. Jesus cries on the cross and he says, it is finished. Now why does he say that? Because our sin and our guilt deserves punishment. The reason we feel guilty and shame is not because of social conditioning. It's because we deserve punishment. We deserve God's judgment for what we did. It can't just be washed away. Jesus cries out and he says, It is finished. And he bows his head and gives up his spirit. Notice he's in full control. He doesn't say, I am finished. No, he says, it is finished. He doesn't, his spirit isn't taken from him. No, he gives up his spirit. He is in control. There's full control. There's full payment. The word there, the Greek word is tetelestai, which means that the debt has been paid. If you've been paying off a bond, perhaps you pay 240 installments. Imagine that. Or perhaps you've been paying off your car. When you pay your last payment, you say, tetelestai, it is finished. The debt has been paid. No more blood needs to be shed. No more sacrifices need to be made to Mary or the ancestors. No more works need to be done. It is finished. There's full control. There's full payment. And there's full stop. When Satan says, how can God use you? Remember what you did? Remember what you said? How can God work through you? How can God use you? How can you claim to be a Christian? When he whispers in your ear, you need to tell him. Jesus said, it is finished. It's finished. It's finished. Amen. Six hours on the cross, saying seven words. We've been here one and a half hours, and we haven't stopped talking. 
Just think about that. Seven words that came from his heart. Forgiveness of sins. Assurance that I love you. I love you personally. God forsaken. In your place, we went to hell. And he thirsts so that we could drink. And finally, Tetelestai, it is finished. There's one thing left for Jesus to do, and that's to die. So as he hangs on the cross there, he says, Luke chapter 23, My God, my God. No, he didn't say that. This is what he said. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This plan was put together before he made a single one of us. Before a single one of us stepped over that mark and sinned. He knew this was ahead for him. He knew death awaited him. He knew the Father's judgment would fall on him. And there it is. Father, into your hands I commit your spirit. He still made us. He still created us. Because he loves us. He loves us deeply. But you know... All those words were meaningless unless three days later he rose from the dead. If there was no resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no assurance of where you're going. He does not care about you. There's no personal love. You will face God's forsakenness. You will thirst unless three days later he rose from the dead. And so I say to you this evening, Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Those seven words are true for each one of us when we turn to Christ Jesus. Because... He has risen from the dead. Amen.